You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. In this episode, we speak with an OCIO, or Outsourced Chief Investment Officer, based in Vancouver, BC, and a major Toronto-based fixed income manager active in both long-only and hedge fund strategies. We go from top-level asset allocation to more granular topics like the corporate bond curve, and hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Welcome, everyone. This is Alternative Thinking with Casa, and I'm James Baron. And uh, we have two guests here today, uh, Ilias Logopoulos with RPIA and Stephen Adang with Anchor Pacific Investment Management. Let's start out with self-intros. Uh, we'll start with you, Ilias. Let's hear about uh, what you've been doing at RPIA and uh, and um, dealing with these, uh, these awesome credit markets that we've been in. Yeah, sure. Thanks, James. Um, so I'm a portfolio manager at RPIA. I've been with the firm for about five and a half years. Uh, prior to that, I was with RBC in a few different capacities, always within fixed income, uh, but I was in capital markets for a few years in the corporate uh, bond sales and trading desk. Um, and before that, I was in wealth management, specifically in Dominion Securities, um, in one role as a fixed income strategist and in another role as a retail bond trader. Um, you know, here at RPIA, um, my focus is on Canadian dollar credit, broadly speaking. Um, as well as a few different specific sectors within the U.S. dollar market, energy, hybrids and preferred shares, uh, amongst others. Um, and I'm a lead portfolio manager on a few of our long-only mandates. Very good. Yeah, I started at DS too, although maybe a few years earlier, and as an IA. But uh, And I think, yeah, your, your boss Richard uh, Pilosoff, the RP and RPIA, uh, he, of course, was uh, at DS for quite a few years too. Uh, how would you compare like, be, being on that side of the desk to being at the on, on the buy side and being at a fund and and how you're looking at ideas and and kind of looking at the markets because obviously it's a bit of a bit of a different lens, isn't it? Yeah, so it's you know here at RPIA we're you know we're focused on obviously global credit and you know we're 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 a receiver of a lot of that information that the banks are putting out whether it's research or. Um, responding to markets, uh, responding to new issue activity, um, rather than being on the sell side where, you know, you're putting out a lot of that information, you're, you're, you're making the markets, you're, um, you know, your research desk is putting out commentary, whether it's on the publishing side or the desk analyst side. So um, it's quite, it, it, it's quite different, but, um, you know, we interact with the sell side every day, whether it's syndicate, whether it's traders, whether it's salespeople, um, you know, bankers, originators. So, um, you know, given our active approach to how we manage credit, um, we are a very active trading shop. So we've brought a lot of that, you know, that skill set um, from our sell side days over to um, our firm. Um, you, know, we have, you know, we have a, several different funds that range from levered mandates, um, you know, that respectively focus on investment grade and high yield credit to traditional long only mandates. But, you know, one common theme across um, all of our funds and portfolios is that we take a very active approach to how we manage our funds. Um, and, you know, given public credit markets are an over-the-counter um, market, 
um, there are still a number of inefficiencies that remain um, within various credit markets. So, um, you know, we try to exploit those opportunities here at RPIA. Love it. Yeah, that's what uh, we've seen a common refrain from folks that come off after the, uh, the global financial crisis. And they'll, you know, for the, for risk reasons, I guess mostly, if, if they're not entirely, they come off the bank desk and they just, you know, pop down into their, their own hedge fund, which, of course, is a whole, holy, uh, you know, um, invigorating idea uh, you know, idea to, to, to do that. But then dealing with investors' money and, and just kind of doing the same trades, I guess. I mean, plus other different stuff, I imagine. But, uh, you know, because the, the banks really didn't replace the, the traders on their desk. Well, I maybe have another idea there. But my, my, my other kind of more immediate question is, like, where do you get your best ideas? Is it from those banks? Is it from... I don't know, talking to other investors, like uh, pension plans or other funds, do you guys talk together? Uh, or is it like internally, just some of your, your brains start cranking and you guys come up with new ideas? Um, I'd say it's internally. We have a, um, we have a great research team um, and you know, they focus on the whole capital structure across high yield and investment grade. Um, you know, we do deep fundamental work. Um, so we leverage off of, of that team for sure, first and foremost. Now that team as well as our trading portfolio management team does liaise with with the sell side street so you know we talk to analysts we read their publications we talk to them about ideas and you know we often incorporate their models and their ideas within our own work but um you know our ideas are proprietary in nature and and we do come up with them internally um so yeah, I think it's it's a combination, but um, you know we really leverage off of our um, research strength. Very cool. Well, let's go to another another guy who gets a lot of ideas uh, probably thrown at him here, Steve with uh, Anchor Pacific. So you're out in the West Coast. So welcome to uh, three hours from 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 now. But uh, what's what's it like uh, with your business, and how is how has it changed over the last last while? Yeah, hey James, uh, always good to be here. Thanks again uh, for having me, and uh, Ilias, uh, great to to meet you. Uh, obviously, know the firm very well, and uh, so yeah, looking forward to this. Um, I am uh, the co-founder of uh, Anchor Pacific Investments, um, as you uh, mentioned, James. Um, we've been uh, around uh, for about six years, um, offering discretionary portfolio management, uh, multi-asset. Mm-hmm. portfolios um that you know really have a couple of of, of different cornerstones um uh a uh a um using alternative investments uh as a lever um to you know really i think kind of change the risk profile uh, more so than uh than you know excess return would be a more of a, a secondary uh objective of, of that um, but but really using um, you know risk analytics uh, quantifiable um, you know risk exposure measurement uh, tools a lot of uh, which was um, you know built by our own technology and our own software right to to drive uh, portfolios c- construction and really mm-hmm. use that as a source of value add to our um, uh, to our clients so as I mentioned we have a discretionary business where we uh, look after uh, the majority of assets for individuals, families, small businesses. Um, we have the ability to do, you know, more specialized mandates uh, for, you know, smaller institutional types, foundations. Um, and, uh, and and then we also have, um, you know, we have, we have some technology that is also 
um, available, uh, you know, from a licensing perspective or uh, alongside, uh, uh, um, you know, you know, maybe an advisory support um, uh, business. And um, and really, uh, and I guess kind of the other uh, kind of channel that we do focus on is um, is we like to partner with other financial advisors that are good at uh, things like relationship management, um, client acquisition, service, that type of stuff, but don't uh, really view, um, you know, you know, building investment programs and, and managing portfolios as their their core competency. So we kind of work with them as a as kind of their outsourced um, chief investment office partner. Yeah, I was just going to say that sounds a fair bit like uh, the OCIO model. That's cool. Uh, you mentioned, like you, you focus on the risk, uh, like using investments, uh, alt investments as a lever to change your risk profile and that, I mean, it's excess or return is secondary. And, you know, you know, to be honest, like having, like say having started as a broker, like people are really focused on the return. Like they kind of don't care about the risk until they do. Um, <laughs> So how do you sell that? Like, how do you explain it to someone and have it like kind of click and they go, oh yeah, I've got to do this a different way than what I've been doing or, or have people already kind of taken that, gone around that corner and you're just kind of waiting for them? Frankly, a lot of that, um, uh, I try to find someone that can kind of stand in, 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 in between the client. Um, and that's why we do like to work with, uh, with advisors that can kind of manage the relationship and, and manage the behavior right? Because, uh, you know, the behavioral bias is, is always going to be there. So, you know, we view really in, in those situations, um, you know, whether, you know, whether this would be, you know, say my partner, John on, on the well side, who, you know, effectively is mm -hmm. the relationship manager uh, for our internal business, or whether we'd be, you know, working with maybe an outside uh, financial advisor or someone on our own uh, platform, right? Where it's really a, a, a buy-in to the philosophy of risk and and of trust and uh, of not really getting too stuck in on how any one uh, part of the portfolio is doing, but how how the portfolio is actually doing as a whole, and and more importantly why it's doing that, right? Um, and and so yeah, um, it does. Uh, some clients can be challenging because they they have expectations that aren't realistic, and and that really comes down to. You know, how you choose to run your business, uh, but ultimately, um, you know, the the, the choice of a, of a discretionary, you know, manager is not a is is really not something where you kind of change your mind every season, you know, based on how the wind is blowing. And so, spend a lot of time with 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 potential clients up front to make sure that they're a good fit, because the last thing we want to have is is kind of disruption, you know, somewhere along uh, down the line. So, so it's a never-ending process, uh, just like any any other relationship. Um, you've got to have good communication and, uh, and, you, and you've got to have a lot of, I think, good parties uh, that are seated at the table so to ensure, you know, that that that, um, that communication is, is optimal. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Ilias, I guess you guys are in a similar kind of book because you have, I guess, advisors, obviously, in the old IROC channel and others that, that pick up your funds and, and, and have basically have clients invest in them and I don't know, do you do a direct business as well, other than, say, family offices and institutions? Um, if you have any, like, internal wealth wealth folks, how is your business structured? And, and how much do you get into that as a PM? Like, are you talking to those clients? Or... Sorry, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, no. So um, if you take our AUM, which is roughly $6.5 billion, um, I'd break it down as a third, a third, a third. So a third is direct high net worth. 
Uh, a third is institutional and a third is the retail channel. So the, the broker directed channel. Um, yeah, you know, I'd say our involvement um, from a portfolio manager perspective with the end client um, has definitely picked up over the past few years. You know, volatility um, you know is, pro- is a product of that, obviously. Um, in higher vol markets, um, the end client, you know, whether it's institutions, um, the broker, or high net worth individuals, they want to speak to the PM. They want to speak to the decision maker and get an understanding right. of, you know, the thought process behind an investment idea, how the portfolio is constructed. Um, you know, how we operate on a day-to-day, how we collaborate with research, um, how the risk process is managed, et cetera. So um, I'd say, yeah, my involvement with, with, with the client base has definitely picked up over the past couple of years, and it's great. You know, and from, um, from a you know, perspective of mine, I, I get to hear about what the, what the clients are seeing from an investment standpoint, whether it's the stock market, whether it's private credit, whether it's the, the mortgage business, um, and, you know, get an understanding of what's out there and, and how clients integrate public credit and what we do within their portfolios. I love it. And then do you, how do you find out is any, is it comparing, say, institutional investors to retail? I guess it's just you talk to the advisors because I hear these stories sometimes people are like, yeah, this institutions are sticky. They come in, they have big money and then they, they stay there for a while and retail is flighty. And I actually had another meeting like half an hour later <laughs> a while ago. And the guy said, oh, yeah, the institutions, they'll just pull. And meanwhile, the retail side is a lot stickier because, you know, it's got to go through the advisor and they got to make a project out of that. Like, have you have you seen any of that or what, what, what do you think of that kind of idea? Um, I would sort of agree with 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 the former. Um, I think the institutional money is a bit stickier at the margin um, and it typically takes a bit longer with regards to the due diligence process to onboard and, and win an institutional mandate. Uh, but once you do, you know, the, the, the relationship's there and it, it can be a bit more sticky. Um, but, you know, it all comes down to performance, right? And if the returns aren't there, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I get why the um, either institutional or retail accounts wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be sticky. So, um, you know, based on experience, I'd say the institutional um, clientele is, is a bit more sticky, but um, it really comes down to returns. Very cool. And then kind of the similar question to what I have for Steve, like the performance, you know, can it, it ebbs and flows, obviously, in, in every business and such and every fund. But how do you how do you guys kind of position it with the risk that people are taking and, and other benefits like correlation and such that they might have with the RPIA products? Individuals are a little bit more challenging to work with. Other institutions, because I, I do think you have, um, I can't make light of the fact that that behavior can be more erratic uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, to individuals and I think uh, 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 individual investors, I should say. And I think a lot of that does come down to the fact um, it, it's really the, the governance uh, issue where, um you know, you can you can talk to uh, an individual or even a, a family or even a family office about, you know, building an, an endowment style or a pension style, you know, program. Um, uh, but in a lot of cases, without that uh, that that charter, you know, you know, endowments, uh, for instance, uh, with a spending rate, right? Um, you know, foundations. Uh, with a similar uh, similar uh, withdrawal rate, right? Um, it's very hard to to enact that 
at the individual level. And so what ends up happening is, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, with, you know, without, we, we don't put any kind of guardrails in terms of, of, of liquidity or anything like that. So a, a lot of times you, you could have, you know, outsized cash needs for whatever reason, they, they could be well-founded, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, emergencies, but they also just could be, uh, things, you know, related to, well, I thought I, you know, I want something and I'm going to use the investment account as more of a bank account, um, which proves pretty challenging, right? So, so once again, I, I think, you know, you have to have, first of all, proper communication that, hey, these funds really are long-term in nature and, uh, and this is how we're going to manage them. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so spending that time really, once you've then identified that and, and really having a, you know, a, a, a risk profile on a, on a, on a, on a client that is, uh, that, that is, uh, that is objective, right? Um, so, you know, whether you're using, you know, Finometric or some other, you know, provider to really understand, um, how much capacity and tolerance a uh, client has for risk so that you can put them in a proper, um, you know, risk allocation framework that, uh, you know, then creates, uh, where I'm going with this is that ultimately that creates kind of a model reference portfolio that, that you're looking to ultimately, um, you know, adhere to, uh, you know, from a risk perspective, right? So whether that's, um, you know, targeting a, a certain standard deviation or, or, or kind of, you know, managing to a, to a, you know, a max drawdown, uh, you know, at the portfolio level or, or some other risk metric, right? And, and then really being able on a quarterly basis and then on uh, over a longer term basis to actually demonstrate um, how, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, how a client's portfolio is actually done uh, relative to uh, the model portfolio or the model reference portfolio that, um, that, that they were, you know, that they agreed to. Um, really, you know, th th that's how we do it, and and ultimately, what we're doing, what we're looking to do is we're we're looking to to deliver a return that is consistent, um, you know, with you know what a you know a sta you know more passive uh, reference portfolio would look like with um, you know, with a lower degree of risk, you know, so maybe seventy five, eighty percent of the overall risk. Very cool. Hello for uh, Ilias. Uh so yeah, Steve talked about like the portfolio. Obviously, he's looking at the portfolio from and managing on a discretionary basis for for his clients that he's working with. And how do you kind of position RPIA in in that? Like, because obviously, fixed income and credit, long short, it's got pluses and minuses, you know, challenges and such that that can come from it, but also some some pretty big benefits. And how do you how do you guys uh, speak to someone like Steve to, to kind of place it in the, in their mind so they go, oh, okay, this is where it fits in my portfolio. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really comes down to the investor type, right? Um, but, you know, we'll speak to a retail client, we'll talk to them about what their um, investment objectives are, um, what they're currently invested in away from us and away from fixed income, broadly speaking, um, and how we can, you know, best fit within their portfolio, you know, assess their risk tolerance levels, right? You know, whether they're um, willing to take a little bit more risk to generate a higher return. Um, or whether they're conservative and they're just looking for a low ball, um, you know, steady yield cash-like product. Um, which opposed to institutions, it's a little bit different, um, as well as high net worth individuals. So um, it's, it's really client by client. Um, but, you know, if I can, um, you know, 
take it to a more simple level, um, you know, we kind of break it down across our three areas of, uh, of focus or our three clients that we focus on. Um, and, um, you know, just sitting down with them and again, better uh, getting, you know, getting a better understanding um, of their investment goals and, and, and how our, you know, seven to eight different mandates um, can be tailored to the solution that they need. Very cool. Um, so maybe we'll stay, uh, let's stay with Elias for a bit too, because I got, so I, I think I'm the best, you know, fixed income trader in the world because I managed to lock in a lot of mortgage, my mortgage, well, all my mortgages for fixed for at least a couple of years out. And uh, then the rates started going up. So let's, uh, let's hear how you guys uh, manage your time over the last little while. I, I, maybe, maybe you can recap, because I think we're at two and a half points up in Canada and I just saw 75 dips in the States. I don't even know how much it's gone up, but it's a heck of a lot. And, you know, anyone that knows duration, so duration of five means one point gain is a five point drop. Like it's just math. Like it's nothing else is really going to affect it. Um, but like, how, how have you guys done in, in the last little while? And then I guess you, you, you probably have hedges on and all these other, other, other things to, uh, to mitigate some of these, uh, these potential scenarios. Uh, yeah, let's hear your side. So I'll, I'll start off by saying good, uh, good work locking in your mortgage uh, at a low rate. That's, that's good. Um, but j- jokes aside, you know, we just to dial it back several months, um, we, we kind of came into 2022 position fairly defensively, you know, reducing our headline credit risk um, levels to, you know, historic lows. And, you know, in our mandates that do take interest rate risk, um, we brought our interest rate duration exposure effectively to zero or, you know, towards the lower end of our risk limits and funds that can't bring uh, the rate duration to, to zero. So, you know, that all being said, means, you know, no matter what happens to rates, that won't affect your portfolio. All the other stuff does of credit and these types of things, right? Exactly. Yeah. So when we brought our interest rate duration to zero, um, you know, we kind of immunized the portfolio to interest rate shocks. But obviously, as credit spreads went wider, if we were long risk by corporate bonds, um, that would obviously cause a bit of a drawdown in the portfolio. But um, you know, given heightened volatility this, this year across, you know, rates and risk assets, um, we've actually found really good trading opportunities to generate some alpha. Um, you know, just to use a bit more of a acute example, um, you know, about a month or so ago, we, we tactically took up both credit and interest rate duration risk um, up across, you know, all of our mandates um, as we sort of felt credit and, you know, government bond markets were, were, were oversold. But, you know, Going forward, where we stand right now, we're, we're still fairly cautious on, on the macro front and, you know, we, we think volatility will, will persist. And, you know, what we've seen here to date, volatility, um, you know, has, has prompted, um, um, has prompted sell-offs in, in risk assets, whether it's credit or, or whether it's stocks. So we're still, you know, a little bit cautious on the market at this juncture. Uh, you know, as, as I alluded to, we're, we're very active trading firm with regards to um, you know, trading, repositioning, and, and tactically managing our portfolios. So, you know, we'll, we'll adjust risk levels based on where we see opportunities across our three primary jurisdictions of focus, which are Canadian dollar, U.S. dollar, and, and, and European credit. But, you know, near term, our, our bias is to stay on the lighter side with regards to risk levels and stay liquid and stay nimble. Um, you know, I'd say, again, not to... Um, get too deep into certain um, areas that we focus on. But, you know, looking at Europe, for example, where we remain very light and started the year really light um, in terms of positioning, you know, geopolitical risks as well as heightened economic risk as oh, we yeah. the war in Ukraine, you know, that's just kind of keeping us on the sidelines in Europe. 
Um, and, you know, given Canada is a bit more of a just beta-driven market, not a very catalyst-rich market, um, we sort of see some of the best opportunities from a, from a catalyst-specific uh, um, perspective in, in the U.S. credit market. Cool. I was going to drill down a little bit. Like you said, you're kind of leadish in the uh, in Europe there. But so you, your currencies, is it mostly just the euro stuff? Did you use Swiss francs and, and I guess, pounds? Or is it, um, you know, you know or yeah, how much do you know about that? So away from Canadian dollar fixed income, um, U.S. and Europe would be our two other primary jurisdictions that we focus on. Um, within Europe, it's it's really euros and sterling, um, the right. two kind of bigger credit markets over there. Um, but in terms of the FX risk, we hedge everything back to Canadian dollars. So, you know, we're, we're credit professionals. Uh, we're fixed income professionals. We're, we don't profess to be FX professionals. So... Um, we, we don't, we don't take that risk. We hedge it all back to cat. Very cool. How about on the portfolio, uh, approach there, Steve, like, uh, I, I, do, do you do any individual positions, uh, or is it all farmed out to, uh, to managers and then how have, how have you guys been, been working through these, uh, fantastic markets? Well, I guess you're, you're dealing with people that are dealing with people. So how do you telegraph kind of the stuff that you're doing? <laughs> a diversified bond portfolio over a cycle is supposed to provide a, a an uncorrelated return to equities. Uh, that's typically what it's done, but but that's also been, you know, the, the fact that, that we've had a 40-year, you know, bull market in interest rates, right? And, uh, you know, I remember being on a, a panel for a private markets event in, in you know, I call it May of 2018, where my, myself and, and one of my fellow panelists, and, and it was more him speaking, but it was the same idea that there was going to be a point in time where you know bonds were were not going to provide that needed their diversification when they were needed most and and, and we've experienced that right so if you look at the the past six months or the year to date through june right uh where you know whether you're getting a combination of us and canadian exposure it doesn't really matter a diversified bond for, portfolio has been, been down 10 percent. so anyone who was in a real 60 40 you know got smacked both ways and and, and they're down 13 or 14 percent um the the you know even the three year you know kind of bond returns for you know you know where you where you're, you know, you own a diversified portfolio you don't you don't have any leverage um, and you have a combination of duration and high quality credit risk is negative. We've understood right rates were really low there wasn't a lot of income and there was a lot of risk for for one day you know when when duration went the other way right we certainly didn't expect that there was going to be eight percent inflation because of you know supply chain. COVID lockdowns in Ukraine, um, but we were always positioned to the point where uh, we really wanted to size our, our traditional bond allocations to a, a minimal level, not certainly a, a, a no level, um, but, but to a minimal level that really lined up with kind of call it the real defensive and, and capital protection uh, part of a, of a client's portfolio. And, and so that could be, you know, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 15%, you know, for a typical 60-40 type client, right? Um, so really, um, you know, for, for many, many years, it's, it's been, okay, well, what do we do with, you know, kind of call it that other 25 or 30% of that portfolio that, that essentially becomes your bond replacement, right? And there are many people that have been trying to figure that out. And, 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 and when we've used a lot of, of different assets, but it, it's really been, you know, the use of, of other levers. So, you know, the, the most logical extension from traditional fixed income is what we call kind of extended fixed income, which really uh, takes us into, you know, other forms of, of directional uh, credit that are outside of the investment grade, high quality 
framework. So that could be, you know, a leverage credit strategy um, that that you know hedges rates. Um, that could be some high yield active. Um, we don't do a ton in the private markets, but that could be some short term uh, direct lending. Then there's you know some you know underlying equity exposure. You know, straight equity market neutral. Um, that could be defensive equity, long short. But in a lot of cases, we really like you know some of the uh, the more you know the true arbitrage strategies, whether they be convertible arbitrage or SPAC arbitrage, or you know, or even you know fixed income relative value. You know, where you're long some credits and you're short some other credits, things like that. And so, you know, we um, we kind of have a, a you know profile that we're looking to kind of hit. And then when we um, then when we see things where valuations get a little bit, you know, out of out of the norm, uh, in other words, uh, things become more compelling, uh, then we may we may take a lean a little bit more. Right. And so, you know, one of the, the things that we did, obviously, in you know April of 2020 is is we looked at, you know, some of the, the sectors that got really beaten down uh, because of illiquidity. Uh, and we um, and we added there, um, and then you know, and then when you know, particularly when when credit um, you know came back in from a, a spread perspective, but also right when when absolute rates kind of came down, we thought there was a lot of juice there, and we w- we kind of went more neutral on on some of those positions, uh, focused a little bit more on you know esoteric strategies that could you know harvest cash flow and and protect capital, and and so um, so we didn't have a lot of duration risk. Going in, um, uh, I would have liked to have had a little bit less, uh, and uh, you know we're we're kind of determining now kind of what we want to do. Uh, to Atilius's point, um, you know rates and income are now a little bit more attractive, uh, but I still see scenarios that that could mm-hmm. that could suggest you know extremes at both outcomes. And our whole idea here is that is that we want to manage you know portfolios that are robust that are that are really positioned for for one of uh for, for for really any any extreme right and we don't want to make a lot of bets on uh on the macro very cool yeah just one macro when i was when i was a boy i had the dlg had this this um i guess a weekly letter or maybe it's monthly if they said they had this thing that there was a recurring theme of fives by the turn so you know short-term government bonds us fives by the turn and fours before long and we're like what because they're like six seven eight percent and and then it went down to like zero <laughs> so What's uh, James? You're uh, you're dating yourself by mentioning DLJ. Uh, I, uh, I I was a former bond trader and did uh, trades with DLJ. Uh, haven't heard that name in a long time. Yeah. Now, if you can spell all three names. Uh, <laughs> so, Ilias, what, what are you guys seeing? Is it is it? Like, I guess you really don't care too much about rates, but uh, I don't know maybe there's something in there for, for you guys because you, like I say, you strip out the FX, you strip out the rate risk, and you've got the credit, which is which is what you're doing. But do you guys have any sort of uh, thoughts on that or steepening or flattening or because you do the twists and all this kind of stuff but people have a lot of a lot of a lot of areas there they focus on from time to time so what's what's what's, uh, what's your guys view on the, on the trends there yeah so you know we we do certainly in our long only portfolios we do tactically take interest rate duration risk and um, you know as i mentioned a handful of weeks ago um, we thought the government bond market was oversold and um, you know we were um, seeing the narrative shift from inflation worries to growth worries. So we did actually tactically take up interest rate duration, um, as mentioned a, a few weeks ago, and, and that's obviously worked out. Um, you know, in terms of curves, um, our expectations, steeper, flatter, et cetera, um, you know, we kind of think rate curves will remain inverted and, and flat in the near term. We've obviously seen a, a something 
um, counter to that over the past couple of days or since the FOMC yesterday. But you know, as a result, given a very flat corporate bond curve as well as inverted government curves, um, you know, we're really positioned in the shorter dated parts of the corporate bond market. So, you know, you don't really have to extend that far out the, the maturity curve to generate a very attractive running yield. You know, some of our, you know, despite being very defensively positioned and conservatively positioned year to date, um, we're generating mid to high single digit um, running yields in our portfolios without taking a ton of risk. Um, and, you know, coupled with that, you also don't need to go too far down the quality spectrum um, to find attractive yield opportunities. You know, only until recently, um, there hasn't been, you know, a, a pickup in ratings or quality dispersion, um, which is why we favor investment grade credit and um, generally the higher quality parts of, of the credit market right now. Um, you know, I'd say only only recently where you've seen, again, as, as I mentioned, the, the shift from inflation worries to growth worries, um, you only recently start to see dispersion pick up in parts of the high yield market. Um, in investment grade, you, we really haven't seen, um, you know, dispersion pick up too much uh, uh, at this juncture. Are you focusing on high quality because like of economic factors? Like, because I think the, you know, an inverted yield curve is predicted like, what, 10 of the last seven recessions. So obviously it's, That's right. yeah. and, uh, and then uh, that affects credit quality because, you know, people are going under, obviously they're not going to pay their bondholders very much or at all. Um, is that part of it in there? Is there, is there uh, something, or did you guys see this actually as continuing into recession with these stagflation and things like that? Or uh, like how bad is this going to get here? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll answer your second question first. So, you know, I think it's going to be a pretty challenging environment for the next, you know, couple of years. Um, not to keep on hammering on growth, but, you know, growth is waning across developed markets. And, yeah. you know, inflation is obviously proving to be anything but transitory. Um, that was the buzzword for the past two years. And um, yep. you know, inflation is proving to be very sticky. Um, you know, I think we're at a, a point where most central bankers are willing to push policy rates uh, modestly above, you know, the defined neutral rate, um, you know, to cause some sort of demand destruction, right, in order to quell inflation. Um, and, you know, using history as a guide, um, this usually causes a recession, you know, which we may already be in in Canada or the U.S. or you know, probably in Europe. Um, but I think, you know, central bankers are they're OK with that. Um, and, you know, I think we've got to step back and just ask Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a it's a central bank um, caused recession. And, you know, if we're in one now or if we enter one. But I, I think the question is how shallow or, or, or deep it will be. Right. Um, and, you know, some pundits will point to the labor market on both sides of the border remaining really tight, um, which should be supportive of a shallow recession. But, you know, we've we've seen an uptick recently in layoffs, uh, mostly in the tech sector or other areas of the economy that expanded really rapidly over the past few years. Um, so, you know, that's a theme to, to, to watch for sure. Um, but to answer your your first question now. Um, in terms of, you know, quality in the portfolio and why we're um, a bit more defensive in that regard. You know, one, again, there's just, we haven't seen that much dispersion within the investment grade market, which is our preferred market versus high yield right now. Um, and two, not to get too technical, but, you know, you think about banks and we've seen a, you know, deluge of supply on both sides of the border, new issue supply. Um, from the, the banks, the U.S. Money Center banks, as well as the Canadian banks. And, um, you know, these are obviously higher quality pieces of paper, uh, higher rated pieces of paper in nature. And 
you've really seen the the relative value between um, banks and corporates, non-financials, um, mm. collapse. So you know you can go up the rating scale from triple B rated um, corporate non-financial bonds, um, and you know not give up much yield at all. In some instances, you're you're going um, into a flat credit spread or a flat yield piece of paper, and you're picking. Um, credit rating. So we like those types of um, investments and, you know, we're still constructive on Canadian banks and U.S. banks, um, again, in the shorter maturity date um, part of the market. So um, that's that's been a bit of our focus um, year to date. How about for you, Steve? Like, after, I mean, you know, obviously with RPIA and other types of, you said you maybe did a bit of private lending because it's all, all thinking all in the credit fixed income bucket and then this back are funds. Like, how do you how do you compare all these like in in terms of like risk return and and how they uh, can fit in the client portfolio well the biggest thing for us really is how the different strategies how we think they're going to play off one another and, uh, and and what's the ultimate profile we're trying to uh, to achieve and and so the the trade that that we made from a philosophical portfolio construction you know standpoint many years ago was we we're going to have to to generate some income uh, still believe that that total return can provide uh, income as well. So the trade-off that that we have wanted to make has not been, first of all, to take uh, a lot of illiquidity risk, um, nor to uh, take a lot of of tails risk, uh, and particularly left tail risk. Right. So so once again, I think with you know a lot of private debt instruments, um, you, you you're certainly taking on liquidity risk, but you're also you know, taking on, you know, some of that, that unknown risk of, you know, whether it's outright fraud or whether it's just ultimately, uh, you know, a bull market where there really hasn't, you know, been any real impairments uh, to kind of deal with. And and so very skeptical, uh, obviously, as a as bond traders are, you know, we have that DNA um, and very risk conscious, right? So, um, so uh, I've always been more comfortable in, in, in kind of being able to understand how, um, you know, how different managers, you know, kind of implement their edge, you know, whether it be a, you know, particular trading forte or, or taking advantage of, um, you know, markets that have, uh, you know, embedded structural catalysts, whether they be, you know, maturities or, you know, mandatory NAV redemption or those that are, that, that have microstructure advantages, you know, in other words, the majority of the traders, uh, you're trading against, you know, retail or, or non-economic buyers, right? And and so the idea of, of being able to kind of understand those different trades and and who you know and who would be executing those trades, um, and then how how they would work together, right? So being able to actually quantify you know what correlation looks like. We're big uh, proponents of of being able to, to quantify a, a, an individual investment's contribution to the overall portfolio risk, and, and so it's really kind of understanding how you know all of these different um, idiosyncratic active strategies that some hedge and some don't and uh, realizing how they work together and, and and then realizing we are going to take on some, you know, kurtosis. We are going to take on some higher moment risk, uh, but we, uh, we want to, um, we want to make sure that, that we're in the right tail more often than we're in the left tail. And so, and, you know, an example of trades that we've benefited from have been in, in the U S mortgage market um, just through, you know, uh, legacy mortgages, uh, non-agency, by understanding document arbitrage, uh, things like that, and having a lot of cash flow uh, to ultimately shorten your duration. Uh, SPAC ARB was another one too, as well, right? Where you have that uh, embedded downside protection, um, you know, because of uh, you know that pull 
to trust value, um, you know, secured by treasury bills, and uh, but where you have the upside, you know, of spirited, you know, equity markets, which we we, we saw for a period of time. The strategy hasn't really done much over the past year, but it's, it's still very attractive uh, relative to the the downside protection uh, with with that you know potential uh, upside. And, and there's a few others like that as well, right? So um, so you know the idea is if we can. Uh, you know, have those um, to kind of complement traditional bonds and and kind of call it more equity market exposure. That that ultimately, uh, you know, that's a that's a ride that we're pretty comfortable with, and and we've we've convinced clients uh, who may not understand the complexity of of what we're doing, but they 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 see the result um, and uh, and and are, and are generally happy with it. That's all you can ask for there. As long as everybody's happy and you stay in the green and you've got the right tail and all that fantastic. I love it. Well, you know, God, I think we can go for another couple hours here, but we should save some for the next the next podcast we do. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, uh, Elias. Thanks, Steve, for your uh, for your time today. And we'll uh, hope to have another one uh, again sometime soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Anytime. Thanks, guys. And, uh, Elias, it was a pleasure. Likewise, Steve, and thank you very much for having us, James.